How's it going, everybody? And welcome back to another episode of the Arm Scholar Podcast. This is podcast number 13. And uh, before we jump into the podcast and what we're going to talk about, I wanted to thank a couple of supporters of the channel. Uh, obviously, Blackout Coffee. Blackout Coffee is run by amazing people. They are huge Second Amendment supporters. So they support the main channel. They support the podcast over here as well. So if you're interested in getting some awesome coffee and also uh, coffee that supports the two-way cause, I highly recommend Blackout Coffee. You can order from them, and if you use the co code um, ARMSCHOLAR, you can get 10% uh, off of your order. I will leave links down below also if you're interested in that. And also, I just want to thank uh, pretty much all of you guys, everybody who's been watching the podcast, who's been listening to the podcast. It's been much more successful than I ever would have thought, so I just wanted to thank you. And also just mention, if you're not currently subscribed over here to the second channel, um, if you're not subscribed to this specific channel, this is where I host all the podcasts. I would greatly appreciate if you subscribe to the channel because that just helps the analytics over here and also helps to push the uh, podcast and this specific channel out to more people. So again, thank you guys so much for all of your support. And without further ado, what we're going to be talking about in this specific podcast is something a little bit different. Uh, what I wanted to do, uh, because a lot of the things that we talk about on this channel, uh, specifically right now also, is in direct response to how the states have responded to the Supreme Court's recent ruling in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, how the ATF is responding, um, and just how counties are responding, just a lot of variety of responses to the Supreme Court's decision in Bruin. So in this podcast, what I wanted to do is kind of walk through um, some of the main ways that states, the ATF, and others have actually responded to Bruin, and primarily some of the main arguments that they're putting forward in response to Bruin. Um, so that's what we're going to be covering in this specific podcast, and it should be enlightening because it really actually uh, talks about how the government is actually trying to resist that Supreme Court decision, and what arguments are they putting forward to resist that decision. Now, real quick, for those who are not familiar with the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, uh, this is a Supreme Court decision issued last year by the Supreme Court, and it had to do with the state of New York's uh, concealed carry laws. Uh, the state of New York, like other states, had a May issue scheme. There are a variety of ways in which states had issued concealed carry permits. The state of New York, like other states like California, New York, um, and others, had May issue, which essentially meant it was completely up to the discretion of the issuing agency whether or not they would actually grant a permit or not. What often this devolved into is if you tried to say – to your issuing agency that I want a concealed carry permit because I want to carry for my own self-defense. Oftentimes in states like New York and others, your permit would just simply be denied. They would not think self-defense was a sufficient enough justification for you to concealed carry. Specifically in the state of New York, they had a proper cause standard and you had to show a proper enough cause of why you actually could execute or actually engage in your Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms or to concealed carry. So a ton of people in the state of New York would always have their concealed carry permits denied. That law and the May issue scheme was challenged uh, by the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association. They are a state affiliate of the NRA. So I always want to make that very clear because I know some people have variety of opinions about the NRA. I have my own opinions about the NRA. I think the national org doesn't do a great job. They don't fight enough for our rights. But I think 
state and local orgs are very good at what they do. Uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association is one of those. A&J RPC is one of those. Uh, California Rifle and Pistol Association is one of those. Um, so I always recommend that if you have one of these NRA state affiliates that operates within your state, I think it's a good idea to join them. I'm a member of CRPA here in the state of California. I'm on the board of my local org. Um, if you're in California, I highly recommend you actually join CRPA. I will leave a link to them down below and um, some codes as well, like here on the screen if you want to join. But yeah, that's the uh, specific group that brought that lawsuit in the state of New York. Now, eventually this made its way up to the Supreme Court. And last year, the Supreme Court issued a 6-3 opinion. And essentially, they struck down the state of New York's May issue licensing scheme. Now, there were a variety of things that the Supreme Court did in the opinion. Um, one of the first ones I think that kind of gets overlooked a little bit because a lot of other things have come out of that opinion. There's been a ton of responses to that opinion. But one of the things that kind of gets overlooked quite a bit from that opinion is the fact that the Supreme Court expressly stated for the first time that your right to self-defense obviously exists outside of your home. Now, why that's important is because you did have a ton of states and government agencies like New York try to argue that your right to self-defense under Heller, McDonald, and others, and Miller, and, and Caetano, and other cases, your right to self-defense only existed within your home. Oftentimes, especially in the Ninth Circuit, you would see the state of California's attorney general argue that the right to self-defense only exists within your home the second you kind of walk out of the curtilage of your home. Magically, your right to self-defense disappears. Um, and so the Supreme Court in Bruin said, no, that's not true. Obviously, you have a right to self-defense outside in public. Um, and then from there, they started to analyze, okay, what is this right to keep and bear arms in public? Does it include your right to concealed carry? And if so, what type of decision-making process does the state or local governments have in restricting your rights? And ultimately, what they found is the May issue licensing scheme was improper, uh, that it was an infringement on our Second Amendment rights, and that maybe the baseline at its very core could be shall issue. You heard Kavanaugh in his concurrence talk about uh, shall issue, and maybe those are presumptively lawful, um, which we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later, some of these presumptively lawful um, mechanisms. And you've, you've seen states really latch on to that stuff in the wake of Bruin because they're trying to latch on to anything they can. One of the things they've latched onto is the uh, Kavanaugh concurrence. So that's kind of what the Supreme Court did as far as the concealed carry permits. Then there was also a very important discussion which had much broader implications, which was how do courts analyze Second Amendment cases? What is the standard upon which these courts need to review these cases? And really this became an issue after Heller and McDonald and really just the inactivity of the Supreme Court on the Second Amendment issues. Um, there was like a 12-year span in between McDonald and this Bruin decision. There was Caetano in between then, but really there was a 12-year span, 14-year span, something like that, where the Supreme Court was kind of inactive on this issue. And what happened is the lower courts started to narrow the decision from down below. So what you saw circuit courts like the Ninth Circuit do is they try to say that when analyzing Second Amendment cases, you would use the two-step approach. 
Um, essentially, at step one, they would see, does this implicate something that's at the core of the Second Amendment? If it does, then they moved on to the second step, which was looking at what tier-based scrutiny should they apply. They applied tier-based scrutiny, and, and at what tier would they apply? Would it be rational basis, intermediate scrutiny, or strict scrutiny? Often what happened at the Ninth Circuit level and, and other circuits, Second Circuit and Third Circuit and others, is they would say, often what they would just do is they would say, oh, yeah, okay, this implicates the core of the Second Amendment. It implicates the Second Amendment right. But then when they got to the second step, they would always rely on intermediate scrutiny. And it wasn't even a pure intermediate scrutiny analysis. Often what it really devolved to was some weird form of rational basis where if the government put forward any public interest at all, um, for example, with magazines, the magazine restriction in the state of California would say, if the state of California says that this restriction meets some sort of public interest in reducing casualties, that's good enough. It doesn't violate the Second Amendment. We're going to greenlight what the state of California is doing. What the Supreme Court said in Bruin is no. This two-step approach, this tiered-based scrutiny, and specifically the use of intermediate scrutiny should never happen when you're analyzing these Second Amendment cases. Instead, they reaffirmed what the true test is, which is text as informed by relevant history and tradition. Now, two things I want to stop real quick. The reason why I said they reaffirmed that the proper test is text as informed by relevant history and tradition is because a lot of people right now are saying this is a new analysis. And this has kind of become a sticking point for me when I, I hate when I hear this. And, and really, this has become a talking point of the anti-gun side. They're saying this is a new test. No, this isn't a new test. If you read Heller and McDonald, this test was in there. Uh, Scalia was clear about what the test was, that it was text as informed by relevant history and tradition. Um, it was just that these lower courts like the Ninth Circuit and others decided that they wanted to use their own analysis. So this isn't a new analysis. This isn't a new standard. It was there all along. You just finally had Thomas in Bruin say, hey, dummies. We were very clear what we said in Heller and McDonald. This is the test, text as informed by relevant history and tradition. Never use intermediate scrutiny. The two-step approach is one step too many. The true test is text as informed by relevant history and tradition. And really what also happened out of this decision is Thomas and the court here was very clear about the burden that is placed on the government. If something implicates the text of the Second Amendment, which the first part of that test is you look at the text of the Second Amendment and determine if this conduct or this arm falls within the text of the Second Amendment, then you moved on to looking at relevant history and tradition. And the relevant history and tradition really comes down to this conduct in which the government is engaging in or this restriction in which the government is engaging in. Do they have some sort of justification which dates back to 1791? They must put forward relevant history and tradition, which supports their restriction. If they can't find uh, relevant history dating back to 1791, 1791 is the appropriate analysis like timeline. It's not before. It's not after. It's 1791. If they can find evidence that dates to that time period, then maybe their justification is or their restriction is justifiable. But if they can't, then it violates the Second Amendment. The court here also said that maybe they can draw analogs from other types of restrictions because maybe there wouldn't be a perfect fit. 
but the burden is on the government to justify their re restrictions using text history and tradition. So that kind of just sets the groundwork of what we are dealing with with Bruin and the impact that Bruin had. Essentially, what happened is this flipped the head, flipped everything on its head because the lower courts before had run rampant in not properly analyzing Second Amendment cases. They had kind of just done whatever they want. They had always given a rubber stamp to every state restriction for the most part. Mainly the issue became specific circuit courts like the Second Circuit and the Ninth Circuit um, and various you know, anti-gun states like New York, New Jersey, and California and others. So they had really caused an issue. And finally, Bruin and the court here had corrected that course. And obviously, some of these judges, some of these governors, some of these attorney generals, some of these states were obviously not happy with Bruin. And in the wake of Bruin, almost immediately, just days after Bruin hit, you saw a ton of articles being released. You saw various governors like Kathy Hochul, and then you also had Gavin Newsom and Attorney General Rob Bonta come out talking bad about the Supreme Court and saying that they were going to fight Bruin tooth and nail. So in this podcast, we're going to talk about how have they gone about doing that and in what ways are they trying to weasel their way out of the Bruin decision. Now, what I want to start with first is the direct response to concealed carry laws because Bruin was specific to concealed carry restrictions, you know, striking down may issue licensing schemes. So what has been the response of states like New York and California to striking down may issue licensing schemes? What have they done in response? Well, obviously the state of New York passed their concealed carry improvement act, the CCIA, which is being challenged in multiple lawsuits. Right now, you have California trying to pass their new concealed carry law. Um, maybe it's looking like it's going to happen. We don't know yet. I would assume likely because it's California. It will unless something develops in New York that maybe gives California pause. California did fail to pass their concealed carry law last year because they tried to put it into effect immediately and with an immediacy clause. And because of that, they needed a specific vote requirement, which they couldn't get, they needed a uh, two thirds vote, but now because they're introducing it through traditional means, they only need uh, a simple majority. So it's looking like California probably will get it passed. But that's been the immediate response to the Bruin decision. You had states like New York and California immediately introduce those laws, those concealed carry laws, their new laws. Now, what are they putting forward for the justification of why these new laws are, in fact, constitutional and why are they saying that they don't violate the Bruin decision? Well, first and foremost, one of the things that they are doing in their strategy in these cases is just simply stalling for time. So there have been multiple arguments made in a lot of these cases that New York or California or New Jersey or whoever simply just needs more time to come up with the evidence that justifies their new laws. Now, if you've read some of the briefs and some of the responses of some of these district court judges or these you know, various circuit courts that are, are hearing these lawsuits, some, some judges are taking issue with that because the clear mandate of Bruin was that the government bears the burden to justify their laws. So you had judges like in the state of New Jersey, Renee Bum, district court judge, 
who pushed back against the state of New Jersey saying, hey, we need more time. And her response was, why do you need more time to come up with evidence that justifies this law? You were, you were essentially supposed to do that work beforehand. You are not supposed to just pass this law in direct defiance to what the Supreme Court said because you don't like it. And then now in this lawsuit, try to scrape and scratch together whatever evidence you had. You were supposed to do that work beforehand. The legislator and the state should have had that evidence ready before they even passed this unconstitutional law. So you've seen a ton of responses like that. You've even seen uh, Judge Benitez in California push back against this stall tactic as well. California was pushing him heavily to stall these cases out for even longer, including the Duncan case, the Miller case, the Rody case. Um, they were pushing for stalls in those cases. And Judge Benitez get, did give them some time, but he said, essentially, you don't need all this crazy time that you're putting forward. One of the things that happened in California is California had argued that they need specific um, history professors or specific experts to actually analyze this issue. And that those history professors, you know, are busy, they're teaching classes, they would only have time during like their break schedules, and therefore they needed more time. Judge Benitez pushed back against that, kind of expedited the case a little bit, but still gave them enough time to try to avoid any claims by the state of California that maybe there was a procedural error. So that is kind of the first tactic that we've seen is simply a stall tactic, trying to argue that these states or these government agencies need more time to bring together the evidence to justify their new laws, their new concealed carry restrictions or, or other restrictions. We've seen some pushback from judges like Renee Baum and Judge Benitez, but then we've also seen other circuit courts, um, other judges in other circuits pretty much just kind of say, okay, we're going to give you more time to try to scrape together this evidence. Now, as far as the actual legal arguments that we've seen pop up in these concealed carry cases, in these concealed carry response laws, uh, one of the first ones has been interesting. What we've seen some of these states argue is that these concealed carry laws that they've now passed, like the CCIA, actually meet the Bruin uh, requirement that they are getting rid of a may issue scheme and that this now is a shall issue scheme. We've seen New York try to argue that their new CCIA law is a shall issue scheme. It removed the subjective proper cause standard. And instead, they've moved to an objective standard. But what they've actually done is they've put to put in place something that what you heard the Supreme Court warn against in Bruin and also specifically, there was conversations that happened during the oral arguments in Bruin about the very issue. What they are trying to do is make a shall issue scheme or an objective scheme only on its face. What they are trying to say is, yes, we'll obviously you know, issue you a permit. We're going to remove discretion, but you have to meet all of these requirements. And we're going to make the process so restrictive, so burdensome that essentially it makes it a shall issue scheme kind of only on its face. We're going to require psyche valves, crazy fees, crazy training requirements. And we're going to just make this whole process so burdensome. And also we're going to place so many restrictions on your lawful use of your concealed carry permit 
that it's essentially pointless. And this is something, again, that we saw the Supreme Court warn against in Bruin. And also, I believe there was an exchange between Gorsuch and the state of New York during the oral arguments about this very issue that obviously they couldn't do something like this. They couldn't just make a shall issue scheme on its face, but make it so restrictive. But that's what the state of New York is doing, and that's what the state of California is trying to do. For example, you know, they have their crazy new restrictions for the entire process, and then your permit is almost useless even if you get it because once you get it, they have this overarching sensitive place restriction where you can't go into private properties or any business, any private property, unless you get the express um, consent from that property or that owner to actually conceal carry at that location. Often there are also sign requirements and some people like uh, I've seen Acostas and Rob Romano, they call this like the vampire rule where essentially you have to let someone in or like when you know, when you have to tell a vampire, like, yes, you can come into your house before they can enter your house. The state of New York and the state of California and state of New Jersey are essentially doing the same thing where a private property or a business would have to say yes to concealed carry person before they could even enter that property. It shifts that burden. It's very interesting in, in what they're doing. But again, they're saying that this is shall issue, that this is an objective standard, that these are objective requirements on its face. But how we are seeing this operate is something directly contrary to what Bruin said. In fact, Thomas in Bruin said you obviously cannot make the entire island of Manhattan a sensitive location. And that was, again, in response to some of the oral arguments and some of the briefing. But what the state of New York decided to do is say, okay, say less fam, essentially, to Thomas. We're not going to make the entire island of Manhattan a sensitive place. We're going to just make the entire state a sensitive place for the most part. We're going to make the that's so restrictive. We're going to almost make the entire state a gun-free zone. And almost they're challenging what, what Thomas said in Bruin. So that's kind of been the first interesting response. You know, you've had stall tactics, and then you've had the argument that this is operating as shall issue. It's a shall issue scheme when in reality, it's only shall issue kind of on its face in its name, but it really just operates as a hyper restrictive shall issue to the point that it's even worse than what existed prior. So that's kind of been two of the main arguments. Now, another interesting thing that I want to point to is what Oregon has done. Now, a lot of you are familiar with Oregon Measure 114. We've talked about it quite a bit on the main channel. What Oregon did is, of course, they passed their magazine ban, but they also put in place a firearms purchase permit restriction. Now, what Oregon is arguing for their firearms purchase permit restriction is they are saying that because Bruin and the Bruin opinion said that shall issue permitting schemes may be lawful, that then, since it applies to concealed carry, they are then trying to shift that over into a purchase permit. They're saying this is going to operate as a shall issue purchase permit and under Bruin that is lawful. Now, Oregon and Measure 114 had a ton of its own issues. Um, they didn't even know if they could implement it. Essentially, if it would have went into effect, it would have led to pretty much no one in the state of Oregon being able to even purchase any firearms until the state could even implement this purchase permit. So there's been a bunch of TROs and preliminary injunctions issued against that law. 
But as you see, there are these interesting arguments that are going on in regards to, yes, this actually operates as shall issue. Um, Bruin said that maybe shall issue is lawful. So we're just going to try to put our gun control into this facial bucket of shall issue when it actually doesn't even operate as shall issue. So that's kind of been the first response that I wanted to talk about in regards to direct response to Bruin and concealed carry. But then there are other cases and other government actions that have popped up um, in wake of Bruin that obviously are impacted by Bruin. And now you are seeing these states and governments have to put forward additional arguments for why those other restrictions are justifiable, why they fall within the text history and tradition standard. And one of the first arguments that we've seen pop up again that sometimes kind of went unavoided or a lot of these states or government agencies would concede prior to Bruin, um, the arguments that popped up have popped up now is that maybe this um, conduct or maybe this arm is not protected by the text of the Second Amendment. We've seen these arguments kind of get renewed. Like I said, prior, what sometimes would happen in the Ninth Circuit is you would have states like California say, oh, yeah, this conduct or this arm, yeah, it's protected by the Texas Second Amendment. But then they would just say, okay, what we're doing is lawful because of intermediate scrutiny. Obviously, they can't do that anymore. So now they've devolved to trying to stop the analysis at that first step because that's the step that matters now. That's the only step. So they've had to now resort to saying or making arguments or in very interesting arguments that maybe this is not a, an arm. We've seen that quite a bit. We've seen that get renewed in um, Miller. We've seen that get renewed in Duncan. We've seen that re- get renewed in Rody and other cases with pistol braces, with bump stocks, um, force reset triggers, other things like that, where they're saying, this is not an arm within itself. This is simply an accessory. And as an accessory, it is not protected by the text of the Second Amendment because it's not an arm. Uh, so we've seen those arguments now pop up, which are very interesting. And a lot of these, it's also interesting within Miller, uh, specifically as far as accessories, in the prior arguments of the briefs, the state of California had almost conceded multiple times that these are arms, this is lawful conduct as well, that is protected by the text of the Second Amendment. But now, since they're having to respond once again in light of Bruin, they're kind of changing their tune and, and going back on what they said prior. But that's one of the interesting tactics that's now popped up because they are trying to avoid having to put forward relevant history and tradition by trying to stop the analysis at that step one, which is the analysis of the text. If they can say this is an arm or some sort of conduct not protected under the text of the Second Amendment, then they don't have to put forward relevant history and tradition is what their argument is. So that's one of the things they've done. You know, in Miller, they're saying, This is simply an accessory restriction. It is a restriction on the type of accessories that you can put on a semi-automatic centerfire rifle or pistol. You know, we're only restricting uh, pistol grips. We're only restricting collapsible stocks. We're only restricting flash hiders or forward vertical grips. This is simply an accessory restriction. It's not an actual restriction on arms. And actually interesting as well, we've seen... In the Texas lawsuit, which is the uh, Texas suppressor lawsuit, uh, the uh, case there, because it was a challenge about homemade or or Texas-made suppressors, 
The ATF has taken an interesting position in that one as well. They are now kind of trying to say that suppressors are not bearable arms protected by the text of the Second Amendment, that the text of the Second Amendment only implicates uh, bearable arms and a suppressor is not a bearable arm, and therefore their restrictions under the NFA are lawful. Now, I know you've heard me say quite a bit in those videos is this is, again, contrary to how the ATF actually operates and how government agencies actually operate and treat those items. They actually treat those items as arms. They, they regulate them as actual firearms. Under the NFA, a suppressor is actually a firearm. It's a Under the definition of the NFA, that suppressor is a firearm, and therefore they regulate and treat it as a firearm. But then in these lawsuits in the wake of Bruin, they are now trying to say, yeah, we treat those as arms, as firearms or, or bearable arms or whatever. Um, but we're now going to argue that, and they're not, they're not actually arms. And so the second amendment and the text is not implicated. So that's some interesting kind of roads these government agencies are taking at the first step. They're trying to just simply argue this is not conduct or these are not arms protected by the text of the second amendment. Another approach that they've taken outside of just saying these aren't arms, is they say, okay, maybe these are arms, maybe the Second Amendment is implicated, but these items are dangerous or unusual. Now, I emphasized or because this is the argument that the government and various states are making or the ATF is making. They're saying the standard is dangerous or unusual. In reality, the standard under Heller, Bruin, McDonald, and other Supreme Court cases and, and even circuit court decisions, the true analysis is dangerous and unusual. So they, the item in question could potentially fall out of the protection of the text of the Second Amendment as an arm if that arm is dangerous and unusual. Now, I'm, I'm also, I want to make this clear, I'm hyper trying to simplify this stuff. There's a lot of nuance to all this stuff, but I'm trying to simplify this to you guys as best as I can. Um, so you guys understand all the variety of arguments that are now being presented by like the ATF, by the state of New York, by California and others. So that's one of the new tactics that they're taking is that this item is dangerous or unusual. We've seen that again with suppressors. They're saying these are dangerous or unusual items. So even sometimes they will say these are dangerous and unusual. They'll, they'll use that language too sometimes. Um, so they'll try to say this is a dangerous and unusual item. There is a history dating back to 1791 is their argument of restricting dangerous and unusual um, arms or items, and therefore our current restriction on it is, is therefore lawful. A lot of the times what you see them historically point to are early American like surety laws where there were concerns about someone um, bearing or carrying an arm to the terror of the public. And so sometimes if that happened, you would then have to get a bond essentially or a surety or kind of like an insurance um, just in case something were happened because you are carrying or bearing an arm to the terror of the public. So governments are often trying to latch onto that as a current justification for maybe, let's say, restricting suppressors because they're saying that's a dangerous and unusual item or California arguing that magazines that hold more than 10 rounds are dangerous and unusual to the point where they are justified in restricting them or bans on so-called assault weapons in the state of California. Those are dangerous and unusual items, and therefore we have the ability to 
um, restrict them. Now, in that analysis, often what happens is the government will completely ignore the other fact that a lot of these items they are regulating are in common use by law-abiding people for lawful purposes. And as we saw in Heller and Bruin, if an arm is commonly used for lawful purposes by law-abiding people, by its very nature, that cannot be dangerous and unusual. Because how could something be unusual if it's in common use? But obviously, the government, um, the ATF, the Biden administration, whoever, wants to ignore that fact. You know, they want to paint suppressors or so-called assault weapons or so-called large capacity magazines as so dangerous and unusual that they have the ability to restrict it. When in, in reality, when you look at magazines that hold more than 10 rounds, those are standard magazines. You know, the AR-15 standard magazine is 30 rounds. You know, you have a lot of uh, Glock, you know, handguns that come with standard capacity of 15 plus rounds. Um, there are a lot of firearms that come with standard capacities of more than 10 rounds. And they are owned by millions and millions of law-abiding Americans. Um, They're used presently by millions and millions of law-abiding Americans. Same thing with so-called assault weapons. The standard configuration of an AR-15 would not include the type that I possessed in California with thin grips and pinned stocks and only being able to use muzzle brakes because flash hiders by some reason is so much more dangerous than a muzzle brake. So those types of configurations are standard. They're common. They're commonly used and owned in America for lawful purposes. So by their very nature, they are not dangerous and unusual. But a lot of the arguments right now that are happening is the anti-gun side is trying to purely put them into this dangerous and unusual category. And then you have our side saying, no, you can't put them in the dangerous and unusual category because they're obviously in common use. One of the interesting discussions that's happening quite a bit now um, that did happen prior, you know, you had these arguments, these types of arguments have happened even before Bruin. You had FPC, GOA, and a ton of other 2A organizations argue for text history and tradition even prior to Bruin. There was arguments that these items are clearly in common use for lawful purposes even prior to Bruin. And they would use cases like Caetano, where Caetano involved stun guns. And the Supreme Court said that, you know, 300, I think, to 400,000 stun guns owned, you know, within the nation showed that those items were in common use and therefore protected by the text of the Second Amendment. You had those arguments pop up even prior to Bruin in cases like Duncan and Miller and Rody and others where they said, OK, look at Caetano. Caetano said, you know, 300 to 400,000 you know, items in possession nationwide show common use, you know, magazines that hold more than 10 rounds are much more in common use. Standard AR 15s are much more in common use. You know, with, when you come to the handgun roster, you know, specific handguns are much more in common use than stun guns. Um, suppressors, even suppressors are much more common use than stun guns. And therefore you can't make the argument that these items are dangerous and unusual, but still what we've seen is that the government is making that argument. And a lot of these cases are really, they're hanging their hat on dangerous and unusual. And really sometimes the standard they use is dangerous or unusual because when you use dangerous and unusual, you know, most firearms by their very nature are dangerous, obviously. 
you know, obviously firearms in the wrong hands or used improperly or just by their very nature are meant to be dangerous. That's the that's the point of a firearm. But by saying it has to also be and unusual, that kind of limits those types of firearms. What the government wants to do is just say it has to be dangerous or unusual because then they can just make the argument that any type of firearm could be restricted because it's so-called dangerous. So that's kind of what they're trying to do. They're trying to play these semantic games here and there. Um, but they've been called out quite a bit in a lot of these cases that that is not the proper type of analysis, that the proper analysis is dangerous and unusual. The next thing that they're actually trying to do that's interesting in some of these cases is they're trying to argue that Heller, McDonald, Caetano, and Bruin only apply to arms that are useful for self-defense or that the right that is mentioned in the Second Amendment only applies to self-defense, that it's only arms useful for self-defense. It's only conduct that is directly tied to self-defense. So that's one of the arguments that we've seen pop up again. Uh, prior, they didn't really lean on that as much, but now because of Bruin, you see them again trying to hang their hat quite a bit on a lot of these cases by saying that the right only means the right to self-defense. So what you've seen, for example, like how would this play out? Well, we've seen like, for example, in Duncan with magazine bans, what they say is the right only mentions that you have the right to arms. And what they're saying is only you only have a right to arms that are useful for self-defense. And therefore, you don't need a magazine that holds more than 10 rounds because they're saying there is no evidence that you need more than 10 rounds. The state of California argues that 10 rounds would be enough. Potentially, also, what we saw early in Duncan, before the case got remanded, the en banc panel actually uh, hinted at that maybe California's argument that you only needed like 2.5 rounds for your own self-defense, that maybe even that would be proper. So that was an interesting, I, I don't know if you guys remember, if you listened to those arguments, but that was interesting where California was saying that, you know, maybe all you needed was two rounds, maybe one in the chamber, one in the magazine. But so that's what they're trying to do there. They're trying to say that this right only applies to self-defense. But again, you know, this is not a popular subject and, and some people try to leave this out, but the Second Amendment does not only just implicate your right to self-defense. That is, you know, one of those core conducts that is protected under the Second Amendment. But there are other things that the Second Amendment is meant for. One of the big ones is to fight against tyrannical governments, both foreign and domestic. When you look at the context of the Second Amendment, when it was ratified, when it was written and what the purpose was, obviously you had our founders just coming off of the Revolutionary War fighting a tyrannical government. And so their interest was making sure that the average citizen in the U.S. was armed and ready just in case they had to fight off another foreign invader maybe even having to fight Britain again, or the potential maybe even having to combat your own government if they become tyrannical. So that is another aspect of the Second Amendment that gets left out quite a bit um, because again, you know, it's not as fashionable to say. It's like Some people get weirded out when you say that, but that's just the reality. Um, and even when you look at, uh, I mean, we got a reality check with this. I mean, I, I don't mean to get on a pulpit here, but we got a real reality check recently, you know, in 2020, when all this stuff started as far as, you know, the lockdowns and, and all that. People started to realize 
the importance of the Second Amendment and your right to keep and bear arms and your right to have access to firearms and protect yourself and your family. When the lockdowns happened, that's why you saw firearm stores, gun stores, ranges, all, you know, wherever you had lines out the door for hours, people trying to purchase their first firearm, even people who, you know, before fought against the second amendment and wanted gun control. And, and now, you know, every, all of a sudden, a lot of people are forgetting, you know, now you have a lot of those same people who purchased their first firearm during the lockdowns now still advocating for gun control. But, you know, in the moment, when there was the potential of something going really bad in our nation, maybe our government doing something wrong, um, all of a sudden everybody realized the importance of the Second Amendment. And again, it's not just limited to your right to self-defense. It is something so much more than that. It is a human right. It is a right to protect yourself, your family, you know, from individual conduct against you, but also tyrannical governments, both foreign and domestic. It's my position. So Again, we got a huge wake-up call during the lockdowns, but what you see a lot of these government agencies make and these arguments that they're making in these lawsuits is that this is only applying to self-defense. You don't need any other arm that you can't tie directly to the use in self-defense. So, for example, the ATF made that argument in the Texas suppressor lawsuit where they're saying – this is not a, you know, a suppressor. You don't need it. It's not a bearable arm useful for self-defense. You don't need a suppressor for self-defense. Now, I know a lot of people, you know, in other states where they have suppressors where, you know, they use suppressors for self-defense. They have it tied to their, you know, handgun. You know, they have it on their handgun at home or they have it on their AR for their home defense weapon because they don't want to blow everybody's ear out. Now, silencers, suppressors, whatever you want to call them, you know, doesn't mitigate noise at all like what the movies show, but it would help a little bit, you know, for home defense, for self-defense, for for whatever. So people do use it for self-defense, but agencies like the ATF are trying to say like, no, you don't need it for self-defense. It's not used for self-defense. People don't use it for self-defense and therefore we have the ability to restrict it. Now, the last two justifications that I wanted to talk about, and there's, again, there's a ton of other justifications and ton of other arguments that I haven't covered here. Uh, these were just some of my favorites and some of the ones that stuck out the most to me when I was kind of putting together what I wanted to talk about in this podcast. But the last two are interesting justifications. Um, so like I mentioned, post-Bruin, government agencies have to justify the restrictions using relevant history and tradition. One of the interesting things that we've seen now pop up is that we've had government agencies put forward historical evidence, but the historical evidence that they are now trying to rely on it was, you know, history or laws or statutes that were racially motivated, that were discriminatory in, in, in nature against maybe a, a racial group or a religious group. You know, we've seen them put forward, you know, restrictions on Native Americans or African Americans or specific religious, you know, groups as justifications for what they are now doing here in the modern time. So um, there have been some very interesting arguments. If you want to see some of the um, historical evidence that they're putting forward, I would direct you to um, the Duncan cases, the Rody cases, the Miller cases, because Judge Benitez made the state of California put together a spreadsheet of relevant history and tradition that justifies, you know, those laws in the state of California. And so the state of California put together a list and a lot of those were racially motivated and religiously <laughs> motivated. So 
that's an interesting thing that these government agencies are now doing because the reality is they don't have a whole lot of historical support for what they're doing. Um, if you look at the founding time, the founders would have never have, have imagined that we would have these types of restrictions on your access to keep and bear arms and your access to firearms that are in common use for lawful purposes. They would have never have imagined these types of restrictions. So there's not a lot of historical evidence, you know, at the time that would support what states like California or New York, New Jersey, or the ATF are doing. So that is one of the interesting things that they, they're doing. And then also what you're seeing them do in conjunction with that. So a lot of the times they're, they will put forward this really bad historical evidence that really doesn't support them and doesn't make their position look good. And then they will also still try to make public interest arguments. And if you recall from the beginning of this podcast, what I said was that the Supreme Court said public interest arguments or you know the use of intermediate scrutiny, which relies on public interest arguments, public interest arguments are no longer valid and they should not be used as a justification for these types of restrictions. But you still have the government in a lot of these cases putting forward public interest arguments. They're saying, okay, we have this really bad history that supports this. Um, it's racially motivated. It's discriminatory, whatever. We're using this evidence as our support. But also, you know, what about the children? Think about the children and think about, you know, the, the citizenry and, and think about the public. You know, we're doing this to help the public. And so they're putting forward those arguments still that before that's all they had to use. You know, I think uh, a lot of these government agencies and a lot of these attorney general's offices and a lot of these attorneys in these attorney general's offices kind of got a rude awakening because for the past 14 years, they didn't really have to do their job. You know, they would write these briefs, they would make arguments, but a lot of them were cookie cutter, copy and paste. And then simply they would just say public interest and their arguments would get rubber stamped and they would win. But now they're having to actually do their job and be creative which the two-way side has been all along because we've been fighting these things. We've, we've had to be very precise in our arguments because we were fighting an uphill battle. But now finally, we have a decision in our favor, which then puts the burden on the government. And now the government's having to scramble to try to figure out what type of arguments they can make to actually justify their law. So that's another really interesting thing that's happened is they are still kind of stuck in their old ways of putting forward public interest arguments. Now, whether or not those public interest arguments will fly is yet to be seen. I think a lot of district court judges, depending on who's on the bench, will shoot those down. But it's going to be interesting once these cases get elevated back up to circuit courts like the Second Circuit and like the Ninth Circuit to see how much leeway they will still give to these public interest arguments because they're not supposed to give any leeway to these public interest arguments in these public interest justifications, but it's going to be interesting to see what they do and how they will address those type of arguments. Um, because the state of California doesn't have a whole lot, or, you know, these other government agencies don't have a whole lot of historical justifications. So it's going to be interesting to see if they, how they weigh that once it gets up to the higher levels. But yeah, I think that's, that should give you a good, you know, kind of framework for understanding the current battle that's going on right now and give you a good understanding of the type of arguments that we now are seeing pop up on the legal side. 
you know, by the government agencies in the wake of Bruin? How are they responding to this? How, what type of arguments are they putting forward? How are they trying to frame this question? How are they trying to kind of weasel their way out of Bruin? And like I said, this wasn't by any means a comprehensive or a super, super in-depth analysis of, you know, specific arguments that are made in specific cases or all the arguments that have ever been made. And I probably got stuff wrong also because I'm just doing a lot of this off the top of my head. So, you know, just take this with a grain of salt, but that should give you a better understanding of when, you know, you hear me talk about these lawsuits or things that are now popping up and, and should help you understand a little bit more how the government is responding to these actions and how these cases are being reviewed and analyzed now in the wake of Bruin and just the arguments that are being made in by the anti-gun side. So hopefully you guys found that informative. If you did find that informative, please drop a comment down below. You know, that helps me understand maybe what the type of information you guys are interested in. Also, if you're interested in a specific type of topic or if you want me to cover something specific, let me know down below. Um, you know, we sh- should have some really good interviews coming soon. We're working on some really special guests. I know I mentioned that in the last one, but we're still working on some scheduling stuff. Um, so I'm really excited by some of the guests that we're going to bring onto the podcast and talk about just generally, you know, the two-way side of things, the firearm side of things, and just, you know, community issues in general. So I'm really excited about those. If you're listening to this over on, you know, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Google, you know, podcast, wherever you're listening to this, you know, if you're on the audio side, uh, please make sure you, uh, I would really appreciate it if you left a review, uh, five-star reviews and actual, uh, you know, word reviews really help the algorithms over there. You know, please share the podcast to people. If you think, you know, maybe this would be informative for someone else, you know, liking this over on YouTube, subscribing to the YouTube channel, commenting and sharing obviously helps, but Um, I really would like to do a lot more of these long form conversations on a little bit more in depth on the second amendment issue. And my hope is also to go on other, you know, larger podcasts, more mainstream podcasts to talk about the second amendment, uh, you know, question and this, the second amendment issue and just firearms, you know, in general. Um, so that's also some things that are also in the work in that regards. But, you know, if you think maybe a specific podcast host would find something like this, Uh, relevant, you know, let them know, you know, maybe you would like me to come on their show or, you know, share it with them or whatever, you know, I'm always open to talk to anybody. And I think this is a topic that loses a lot of its nuance based on people who don't actually follow this in depth. You know, you have a lot of commentators who have opinions about this stuff, but they don't really dig into the topics in depth, obviously, like I do, you know, when you're a practicing two-way attorney and you follow all these cases and all these arguments, you know, (laughs) obviously you're going to know a lot more things in depth. So, you know, that's just kind of the plan with the podcast coming up with interviews and maybe me going on other podcasts. And then there's also some more logistic things in the work as far as, you know, how the podcast is going to be, you know, held and who's going to host it and things like that. But obviously I'll update you guys when all that stuff happens. But regardless, thank you guys so much for all of your support. Thank you to everybody who's been listening to podcasts, who's supporting this kind of goal over here with the podcast. Uh, thank you guys. Again, don't forget to like, comment, subscribe. And never forget, this nation was built by scholars, and this nation will be maintained by scholars.